Hello, and welcome to Back to the Bins. Uh, I'm not Scott Gardner, and I'm not Michael Bailey. I'm your guest host this week. My name is Trent Thornton. I'm not sure if uh, too many of you uh, recognize that name. I'd be surprised if you did, uh, actually, because um, I would think the only the only way any of you would have ever really heard of me is if uh, you listened to... Uh, 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 Bailey and Gardner's uh, uh, Back to the Bins Not Back to the Bins <laughs> It's been a long week um, Their uh, their podcast uh, uh, Tales of the JSA uh, I've written in a few times uh, You know, mostly to rant About, uh, you know, this and that And, you know, it's actually been a pretty uh, cathartic experience But, um, you know, just uh, Truth in advertising I really don't pretend to be a podcaster Or, uh, you know, anything like that I don't pretend to be an expert or anything But, um I've noticed that uh, uh, time and scheduling constraints and, you know, probably issues with jobs and, you know, family and all these other things kind of prevent uh, Back to the Bins from being a, 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 a truly weekly podcast at, at times. You know, I think it's pretty easy for this particular uh, show to uh, get behind schedule just because, you know, justifiably... Uh, you know, your actual uh, hosts um, tend to get busy with other things, and, you know, this is, and, and sadly, you know, this is the uh, podcast that tends to suffer the most for it as a result. So, um, and because it's my, you know, my all-time, you know, favorite podcast, you know, number number one with a bullet, um, you know, I'd like to, you know, just selfishly see it on, a, uh, on uh, some kind of a, a weekly basis. Uh, you know, in terms of its release and everything. So, you know, if there's anything I can do, you know, to assist in all of that, then um, obviously, you know, willing to do it. So, um, basically, sent uh, Scott, uh, Scott Gardner a uh, message on, you know, Facebook, just saying, you know, um, just had this idea. You know, I could, I thought I could, you know, record an episode, and you know, if you like it, you like it. You know, you can just, I guess, uh, put in the. Um, the intro and the outro, and you know, uh, you know, just load it on the uh, on the server, and you know, let people download it. Or you know, if you think it sucks, or or you know, whatever, then, uh, then that's fine too. But you know, at least uh, at least I'm making an effort. So, um, and really, that's what you know, that's what this is all about. So you know, I guess uh, you know that stuff out of the way. Like I said, not really a um, a, a podcaster. Never really you know thought about you know doing this kind of thing. Uh, myself, so, you know, obviously I'm, you know, I don't have, I, at least I don't think, I, I, I don't have quite the radio, the radio voice that uh, Scott and Michael do, but I also don't have the radio faces that they do, so I'd, I'd like to think there's some uh, equity in all of that, so, uh, anyway, uh, what I've noticed, you know, primarily, you know, and uh, just in the course of, you know, listening to uh, a lot of these podcast episodes is that uh, your standard kind of superhero fare tends to get, you know, uh, a whole lot of coverage. I mean, I don't think it's really all that hard to find uh, Back to the Bins episodes about, um, you know, a Superman comic book or a Batman comic book, you know, or, or this or that. And I love those characters. I mean, they are, you know, my two favorite comic book characters. I want to be clear on that. But, you know, that having been said, you know, I'm I'm probably not going to do as good a job talking about those kinds of things as... Um, uh, Scott and Michael do so you know uh, the way I see it why set myself up you know for that kind of uh, you know uh, shortcoming you know so I just thought it might be kind of interesting to uh, uh, you know do uh, just talk about you know comic books that you know are less likely to be discussed on the show you know just to be just to be different I guess so 
Um, with all of that in mind, the uh, first uh, the first of the two comic books that I'm going to be uh, talking about tonight, um, the first one is uh, The Shadow Strikes, uh, number uh, 21, and... Um, uh, basically, you know, for those of you who uh, who may not know, this was a uh, comic book series um, uh, that was published. I, I want to say starting in 1989, 1990, around there. Um, um, obviously, the you know the character is uh, is the shadow. Um, I've been kind of on a shadow binge the uh, past couple of weeks. You know, um, you know, just reading different comics and even going into uh, some of the pulps and all of that, and, and you know, the radio show and. Uh, you know various comics and things that I've been able to find, and I, you know, I just I, I like the shadow, and you know I think it's a uh, you know just it, it's it's just a, it's it's a really neat concept overall, so um, you know and and one that doesn't seem to get a whole lot of appreciation. So, and to the best of my knowledge, you know um, the guys have never done a, uh, a a review of any kind of shadow comic book or anything like that on the show. So um, uh, like I said, you know just in an effort to be different, you know and uh, not tread too much on at least what I perceive to be their turf. Uh, you know, just um, thought I'd give this a shot and see how it goes. And like I said, you know, ma- maybe it's going to suck. Maybe it's just it's not going to go go the way that it needs to uh, needs to go. But the way I see it, you know, you're only going to have to put up with me once, and then after that, well, then after that, you'll probably never have to hear from me ever again. So that's that's pretty much that stuff. So. Without further ado, uh, here we go. This is uh, The Shadow Strikes, issue number 21. Cover date is July of 1991. The uh, title of this story is uh, Two Million Eyes. The, uh, the writer is Gerard Jones. The penciler is Rod Wiggum. Inker is uh, Jerry Fernandez. Letterer is Bob Pinaha. Pen- I don't really know how to pronounce... Whatever. The colorist is Anthony Tallon, and the editor is Brian Augustine. The issue starts with uh, Margot Lane and Harry Vincent, both of whom are agents of the Shadow, uh, by the way, uh, dropping off messages for the Shadow at the uh, B. Jonas Investments office. As they do so, they are watched by a Chinese couple. Uh, Margot and Harry eventually bump into each other, literally, and uh, Harry tries getting into Margot's pants, but she's already made plans with her fiancé, so they uh, go their separate ways. Page four, we see Claude Fellows, another shadow agent, swinging by the B. Jonas investment office to collect the day's uh, accumulation of messages. Before he can leave, though, uh, he's ambushed and kidnapped by several Chinese warriors. Next, we see Lamont Cranston waiting around at the Cobalt Club for the day's messages to be delivered. After a while, it becomes pretty clear that they're not going to be arriving, so Lamont gets uh, pissed off and tells a valet, a, a valet uh, to get his, get his car so that he can uh, get out of there. We next see a shadowy figure sifting through the messages dropped off by the Shadow's agents. Meanwhile, the Shadow drops by the B. Jonas Investment Office uh, to figure out where his fucking messages are, and uh, after spotting blood on the floor, Shadow whips out his twin forty fives and gets ready to kick some ass. First, he calls Burbank and tells him that the organization might be under attack, and orders Burbank to warn the uh, the other agents, beginning with Margot Lane, that they could, uh, you know, they they could be in some serious trouble. Um, day late and a buck short, though, as Margot is busy getting kidnapped by more Chinese warriors. Burbank next tries calling Harry Vincent, but Harry's too busy, also getting kidnapped by Chinese warriors. Next comes Shrevi on page twelve. Burbank actually gets a message, uh, uh, rather manages to talk to Shrevi a little bit before Shrevi gets 
Say it with me. Kidnapped by Chinese warriors. Uh, the shadow heads over to Margot's apartment and finds a piece of fabric on the floor and instantly recognizes somehow um, that it that it originates from Shanghai. Curiouser and curiouser. Pages 15 through 17, we see the shadow discussing Margot's kidnapping uh, by uh, 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 by the uh, by the men, uh, the Chinese warriors. First with Yat Soon, sort of the godfather of the Asian underworld, and you know basically Yat Soon. And uh, tells the shadow he doesn't know a damn thing about what's going on or who might be striking at the shadow's organization. Shadow on uh, page 17 ends up having a, a kind of similar conversation with Dr. Roy Tam, uh, you know, who says he's been busy uh, calming racial strife between Chinese and Mongols to know uh, much about what might be happening to the shadow's organization. Uh, the rem- the uh, remark about uh, Mongols. Um, piques the shadow's interest, so Roy Tam informs the shadow that a group of Mongols have been squatting at the abandoned Imperial Hotel. For those of you who didn't know, by the way, it was renamed the Imperial Hotel after uh, Palpatine took over. But anyway, back to the story. Um, uh, From there, we drop in on Margot and her captors. Margot tries to escape, but doesn't quite manage it because she's a woman and they can't do anything right. Just kidding. After that, the shadow follows Agent Roy Tam's tip and pays a visit to the abandoned Imperial Hotel. Turns out Roy Tam wasn't bullshitting. Uh, That place really does seem to have been abandoned for quite some time. However, when the shadow least expects it, a trap door gives and he plummets helplessly, becoming trapped in an underwater cage. And his oxygen is running out. The final page shows us Shiwan Khan watching the shadow struggle helplessly in the cage, trying to escape from drowning, uh, as he says, We do want Miss Lane to see her hero's defeat at the hands of Shiwan Khan. So let me start off by saying that I freaking loved this issue. It was it, it was absolutely amazing. In fact, I, I, I love... I love this series. I mean, I, uh, you know, I mean, obviously, I'm a, I'm a big Shadow fan, and it, you know, I think I said that earlier. You know, it uh, took a, it, it took some time really to kind of get a taste, uh, you know, uh, for the Shadow because um, when I was a kid, you know, my, my, my usual preferences mostly ran towards your, your kind of typical, you know, costumed superhero, you know, kind of traditional, you know, sort of approach to, to uh, comic books, which, in short, is that's pretty much everything that the Shadow isn't really I'm you know he's he's not uh, I I've never really felt comfortable you know calling him a um a uh, a costume superhero or anything like that because he's really not I mean you know he I guess you, I don't even really think you can say that he even really operates inside of that world you know I mean you could more accurately say you know call Batman uh, a superhero and 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 have it stick you know but I don't I just I've never really thought that that was true of the shadow and you know once I came to that realization you know it was like everything kind of fell into place with, you know, the character. You know, and suddenly I, I understood, you know, who he was and what he was all about and everything. And, you know, it, it, it just, um, I don't know, just that small realization, which I guess is maybe obvious for some people, you know, it, it uh, I guess once that dawned on me, then all of a sudden it made, you know, appreciating the character, his world, and, you know, just sort of his mythos, if... Um, if you can say he really has mythos, um, but just appreciating, you know, the character and the concept and all of that, um, it, it, it suddenly, you know, I got it, 
you know, I understood now. And, you know, it just, everything kind of fell into place after that. So, um, you know, like I said, started, you know, uh, reading the, reading some comics, reading some pulps. Uh, you know, I'd always kind of been aware of the radio show. I mean, it was one of those things that, you know, I, I kind of went through a, a phase when I, w- when I was younger where I, you know, was listening to episodes of the Superman radio show. And, um, you know, liked that. And kind of just liked, you know, radio as a format, you know. Uh, for telling stories, I you know it, it you know it's obviously now very much a, a lost art, but you know it it whatever anyway this is boring so um uh, listened to uh, some episodes of the uh, of the Shadow Radio Show just you know enjoyed it and everything and then you know uh, came to I guess a place of appreciation for the character and you know began reading you know uh, the comics and everything and then you know kind of kind of tripped over uh, this series just a, really just a few months ago. And, you know, I mean, holy shit, this is a good series. Uh, like I said, I mean, written by uh, Gerard Jones. If, if I'm not, if I'm not uh, much mistaken, he actually wrote, I think, the entire run of the series. And, um, you know, if you know anything about uh, The Shadow at all, it becomes pretty clear that he gets this character. And uh, it just, it, it really is a phenomenal series. So if you've uh, never checked it out, I, I really could not more highly encourage you to do so. Um, you know, so that's kind of the starting point on all of this. Now, as to, you know, the issue at hand, issue number 21 of The Shadow Strikes, um, I really felt like, you know, for as good as the series was up to this point, and, and it is good, I, I would actually call this uh, the definitive uh, shadow, at least as far as I'm concerned, um, this is the definitive shadow. But for as good as the series was up to this point, the, um, I guess this, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, this this series, or rather this, this issue is, um, it's, it's just, it, it's such, such a notch above all of the rest, because up to this point, um, Gerard Jones had, he'd pretty much followed, I think, the, uh, the, uh, standard of, of, uh, making the shadow, um, you know, really, uh, a borderline, um, infallible, you know, uh, anything that the shadow did was the right thing to do. Anything that happened, um, either the shadow instigated it or he simply just, you know, allowed it to happen, you know, um, uh, you know, and it, it, it always felt like, you know, at every step of the way, he always has the situation under control, no matter how crazy things get, he's always got an ace in his, uh, you know, an ace, an ace in the hole. And, um, you know, this issue and this storyline really in general, but specifically this issue is kind of the start of Gerard Jones, um, I don't know, deconstructing that a little bit. You know, throughout this entire series, um, what you see is, like I said, you know, the shadow being in, being borderline infallible and starting in this this specific issue and this uh, this storyline in general, which incidentally is called, you know, the return of Shiwan Khan. Um, uh, you know, he, what we see is the, is the shadow, he actually starts being caught off guard by things. He's caught by surprise. There were things that happened that he didn't expect. Uh, you know, he didn't understand necessarily everything that was going on, and um, you know, it. You know, it, it's just such a such an amazing reversal that you know, after all of this time, this this setup pattern uh, coming, and then here comes Shuan Khan. He comes along and you know, pretty much in one fell swoop, pretty much destroys you know the sh- the uh, the shadows uh, in, entire organization. And um, you know, it's just it, it was just I I cannot say enough nice things about about this issue. It's just it, it really was amazing. I mean. In an already amazing comic book series, this issue really is a highlight, and it's really just part one of um, of a story that 
uh, I think it, it kind of has a lot of uh, similarities in some ways. You know, this this return of Shiwan Khan, it kind of has a lot of similarities to The Empire Strikes Back or Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, but this idea of, you know, uh, you know, the hero being caught off guard by an old enemy and, you know, basically getting his, his, his ass handed to him. Um, you know, just, it, it really is amazing. Um, so, uh, that's, I think, probably enough of a Gerard Jones, uh, love fest. Um, to the art, um, uh, you know, pencils by, uh, Rod Wiggum. Uh, he actually ended up following, uh, Eduardo Barreto on this, uh, on this series, you know, and, you know, uh, Eduardo Barreto had done just such an amazing job, you know, uh, you know, with the art that, you know, I at least kind of felt like, you know, well, who the fuck is this guy coming in, you know? Um, and, you know, basically anyone who's not, you know, Barreto, I was probably just going to, you know, have a problem with. But I got to tell you, by the time of uh, issue 21, um, Wiggum had really had really settled in. He'd found his groove. And, you know, it just, you know, uh, just really, it, it's, it's, Barre- it's Barreto-ish, but it's not, it, this is not Wiggum, you know, uh, uh, ripping off uh, Barreto at all. You know, he he very much is bringing his own his own uh, voice to the material. And um, just throughout, I mean, it, it, it really is amazing. You know, the shadows are deep and, uh, and, and dark, you know, and sinister when they need to be. Uh, you know, he's, he's clearly got a, 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 an amazing understanding of pace, of lighting, perspective. You know, basically all of the tools of the trade if you're a comic book penciler. And, you know, he's, yeah, he's got it, you know, uh, just absolutely. Uh, he's got it. And... Um, the uh you know the i think probably though the 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 real the real uh kind of sucker punch that you know the series was supposed to deliver in terms of uh you know Shiwan Khan being the uh, the culprit behind it all if you've been paying attention to the you know the storyline at all up to this point then you know the that last page reveal of uh Shiwan Khan um you know basically being the mastermind and the architect of all of this stuff it really is not that big a surprise um but uh nevertheless you know just uh, you know just the way that it the way that it plays out in the issue at hand um it, it still is a, a i think a very effective moment it just it, i don't think it plays as well as uh you know being a surprise as it probably was intended to be but that's certainly not gerard jones's fault so um, like I said, just uh, just a you know phenomenal issue, uh, phenomenal characters, phenomenal art, phenomenal series. Really, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I really hate beating this thing to death, but the storytelling here is just so subtle at times. Uh, you know, so much of uh, at times the narrative is being carried um, by Wiggum on pages that really have little or no uh, text on there to you know to, to steer the narrative. Um, you know. It's the rare comic book artist, I think, who can do that, um, and and Wiggum is definitely in, in that group. It's just, uh, re- it really is, it really is amazing. It's it's uh, great stuff. Okay, the next uh, uh, comic that I'm going to be talking about tonight is once again off of the uh, 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 path of a standard superhero book. Um, uh, this is uh, Punisher Warzone uh, number one. Uh, cover date is March 1992. Uh, the title of it is uh, Only the Dead Know Brooklyn. Uh, the writer is Chuck Dixon. The penciler is John Romita Jr. Inker is Klaus Jansen. Letterer is Jim Novak. Colorist is Gregory Wright. Editor is Don Daly. 
and the chief is Tom DeFalco. The issue opens with the Punisher facing a hostage uh, situation. Uh, a crazy dude is using a uniformed police officer as a human shield, urging the Punisher to back the fuck away, or he'll shoot her in the head. The Punisher being the Punisher, uh, he opens fire as the cop dives for cover. His bullet grazes the cop's arm, but catches the crazy dude full in the stomach. Crazy dude pretty much begs, saying that he has information the, the Punisher uh, could use in exchange for sparing his life. Um, but Mercy isn't exactly Frank Castle's strong suit, so he blows the crazy dude to hell. Uh, as the Punisher turns to leave, uh, the cop tries to arrest him, but the Punisher turns his back and simply walks away, and the officer lets him go. Um, we then cut to a bit of a confrontation, really, between um, the Punisher and Micro. Micro insists the Punisher is pushing himself too hard and taking unnecessary risks. Frank says that, he's, uh, that he got the job done, so he's got to be doing something right, so Micro can have a nice warm glass of shut the fuck up. Uh, Micro is all, oh no, you didn't, and storms out in a huff. Uh, Frank follows Micro, who meets with someone and seems to have a prolonged conversation. When Micro gets back to the place in Brooklyn, uh, the Punisher confronts him about it, and come to find out, the guy Micro met with is a shrink. While fondling a really big gun that holds a lot of bullets, Frank asks Micro if he blabbed about Frank's penchant for blowing crazy dudes to hell. Personally, I think a better question would have been asking what the hell's up with a, such a late-night appointment. In my five years as a psychiatrist, I never heard about these sorts of things being scheduled after about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, in most circumstances, but whatever. Micro wigs out, says he's working through uh, grief counseling after the death of his son, and storms out again in another huff, telling Frank he's leaving and won't come back. Frank, for his part, comes off supremely unconcerned. From there, we cut to a scene of shotgun blowing uh, a, a Colombian warlord and some of his foot soldiers to hell. After that, we cut back to a scene of the Punisher blowing some armed thieves to hell. All except for one, a guy called Mick. Uh, back at uh, ranch headquarters, Frank tries to get Mick to talk about the Carboni crime family, but Mick's answer, Mick's answer I should say, rhymes with, Go fuck yourself. Because of that, the Punisher interrogates Mick using a blowtorch. For those of you who have, uh, you know, who've seen the uh, 2004 Punisher movie with, uh, what's, what's his, uh, Thomas Jane, uh, you're probably going to remember this scene pretty well. Um, Frank uses the blowtorch on a raw steak, and you know while doing so, he holds a popsicle to Mick's back, giving him the sensation of being burned with the blowtorch. The steak burning and popping and all that uh, provides the right smells and sounds to uh, convince Mick that he's being burned with the uh, blowtorch. After that, Mick becomes a little more willing to see Frank's point of view. Uh, Castle lets Mick go, and Mick heads back to his place, just in time to hear from Andy Calabrese from the Carboni crime family. Andy asks Mick if he knows anybody looking for work, because at this point they're kind of short on uh, people since um, uh, uh, the Punisher blew so many of uh, Mick's co-workers away. Uh, and realizing this is uh, Frank's big chance to infiltrate the Carbonis, Mick says he does indeed know a guy. The last page shows Frank Castle being introduced to the Carboni crime family as Johnny Tower. Castle. Tower. <laughs> Get it? That's pretty much the end of the issue. Um, I guess probably should start off this section. Uh, you know, I've never really been a, uh, a, a huge fan of the Punisher. Uh, no, by the way, no disrespect, uh, you know, to anybody who is. But I've always, I, I always kind of felt like um, the Punisher was mostly a, a sort of one-note character. 
and this is arguably why it's hard for him to you know sustain a film franchise you know there's just there's a limit to what you can to what you can really do with the guy i mean frank castle he's just not a complicated character if you're guilty you're dead without a doubt i mean that's at least in my mind that's probably the single best summation of the punisher that i've ever heard uh, but true as it is it doesn't it doesn't really leave much room for a film franchise to explore. You know, there's just not much there to work with, at least not in my mind. I'd also argue that it's uh, the main reason why I think The Punisher uh, should only really star in the odd miniseries now and then, you know, like once or twice a year. You know, that having been said, though, uh, I really dug this whole story arc and uh, and uh, this issue in particular. A part of that is going to be, you know, down to the fact that I'm uh, I am a huge Chuck Dixon fan, you know? Only, I only became uh, aware of uh, Chuck Dixon from his run on, um, on uh, Detective Comics and uh, Robin uh, back in the 90s. But, you know, he's easily in my, in my top five of uh, Batman writers. You know, so I, I guess maybe it's a given that I would enjoy, you know, his work with the, uh, the Punisher. You know, now in my five years as a freelance writer, I haven't really seen too many people with a, a better gift for uh, telling crime stories. I mean, when it comes to that, Chuck Dixon is a force to be reckoned with. Um, you know, now in fairness, this, uh, this particular, this particular story is, it's a little schlocky, you know, at times, you know, I, I mean, don't get me wrong, it plays pretty well for it being an early 90s ongoing Punisher title, but, you know, it, that being said, it's, it's, um, it, it, it's, it's still just a little schlocky now and then. Now, obviously, I like the moment where Frank, uh, pretended to, uh, torture Mick with, you know, the blowtorch, you know, obviously Frank... Frank only did it so that uh, he could use Mick, uh, Mick to uh, infiltrate the Carbonis, and actually, I kind of like what that says. You know, I like what that says about the Punisher. You know, in uh, in, in my five years as an interviewer at a Gitmo, I can tell you that techniques like that really do work. You know, um, uh, yeah, you know, the Punisher, he wants to blow criminals to hell and everything, but he's perfectly capable of thinking in terms of uh, you know long-term strategy. You know, if he'd blown Nick to hell right outside of the, that restaurant casino thing, you know, yeah, sure, you know, a criminal would have been punished, uh, but it wouldn't it wouldn't have allowed Frank the access he was eventually going to need to infiltrate the, the Carboni family. So, you know, on that basis, I say it works. You know, um, now, one nitpick, one nitpick in, uh, in, in this story, though, is Frank knowing to ambush the casino robbers in the first place, which is what he does on uh, page 17. Now, I guess you could argue that Delbert, this is the, uh, you know, the guy that, you know, Frank blew to, blew to hell back on page three. Uh, you, could, you could maybe argue that Delbert told Frank about it before he got blown to hell. But there's really nothing in the story uh, to confirm that, you know what I mean? Um, uh, and uh, another, another kind of nitpick would be, you know, Castle so easily infiltrating the Carboni family, you know? Yeah, maybe they don't keep up with the news, but, you know, given my lack of credentials as a Punisher fan, you know, just keep that in mind, I'd always assumed that it was generally known that uh, Frank Castle is the Punisher, you know? Um, it just, it makes you wonder how Castle could ever infiltrate, you know, anything with such a well-known face, but whatever. Anyway, um, John Romita Jr., uh, John Romita Jr.'s art, um... No, seriously, now, no offense to any any of his fans who might be listening to this, but I just never understood the appeal of J.R. Jr.'s Spider-Man work, all right? 
I just I, I never saw right uh, he just he never he never really impressed me you know um, at least not with Spider-Man now that said I think I think Romita Jr. does a, a great job with your gritty street level heroes you know I mean I love the hell out of Romita Jr.'s art in uh, Daredevil Man Without Fear for the same reason that I dug on his art in this issue you know I think it plays to his strengths as a pencil you know you can get by with stiffer and blockier line work and deeper shadows and things like that with characters like Daredevil and the Punisher because of their just their inherent grittiness you know so you know even though I'm not normally a fan of Romita Jr. and just his art I thought he did an, uh, just an amazing job you know with this issue you know page one uh, in fact shows the uh, Punisher just standing in the hallway confronting you know the crazy dude before he blows him to hell and the shadows, the line work, the just the overall atmosphere that's going on there. It's just it's it's a great first page. Um, hell, I'd even go so far, you know, Klaus Jansen, who I'm normally no fan of, um, you know, even he delivered the goods this time. You know, um, now just kinda, you know, shifting gears here a little bit, um, I don't really notice coloring in comics all that often unless it's A, really good, or B, it really sucks. You know, but I want you know if you if you're flipping through this issue and just kind of following along with it, I want you to flip over to page 17, where uh, the robbers run out into the street after uh, cleaning out the casino. I mean, guys, that is some awesome coloring work uh, by uh, Gregory Wright. Um, it's uh, it's very um, uh, it's very what's what's the word uh, garish? You know, it's very Watchmanish. Uh, you know, it's it it has a heavy heavy use of your secondary colors. You know, your your browns, your greens, your oranges, and, and so forth. You know, it's just, it's, it's really cool. Great coloring job, especially on that page. But, you know, throughout the entire issue, but especially on that page. Anyway, uh, so I guess, you know, to, uh, you know, just kind of summarize, you know, overall, I pretty much dug this issue. Um, I maintain that the uh, Punisher is a, you know, he's still kind of a, uh, a one-note character, but, you know, I guess, you know, on that basis, sometimes that's, Sometimes that's the only note you really want. So, good issue. Go get it. Um, now, as for emails this week, uh, we've we've got a couple here. Um, uh, the first email comes from Scott Gardner. Uh, Scott writes in to say, "You suck." Uh, the next one, uh, the next, uh, this next email comes in from uh, Michael Bailey, and uh, you know Bailey says, "Fuck you, die slow." Um, and then the final email comes from Sarah Michelle Geller, and she says, Trent, if you come over tonight, be sure to bring the toys with you. So, um, guys, just, you know, as ever, I'd like to thank all of you for writing in and sharing your thoughts. Because, um, you know, guys, i got to tell you, no bullshit. You know, listener support is the only way any podcast can stay going with us. So I really appreciate all of you who took the time to write into me this week. Um, you know, and just, uh, you know, sharing your, your thoughts and all of that. So, um, anyway, so I, I think that's pretty much it for me. So, hope you all have a Merry Christmas. Did you know you can sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows? That's right. Simply click the PayPal link on our website, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you 
will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. While attending a demonstration in radiology, student Peter Parker was bitten by a spider which had accidentally been exposed to radioactive rays. Through a miracle of science, Peter soon found that he had gained the arachnid's powers and had, in effect, become a human spider. Stan Lee presents... Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size, catches seeds just like flies. Look out, here comes the Spider-Man. Welcome to Amazing Spider-Man Classics, where every month I and some friends will be discussing every book, every guest appearance, and every cameo we can find of our favorite web slinger, The Amazing Spider-Man. Are you tired of arguing over whether Ben Riley should have taken over the webs? Do you grow weary of the brand new day with all of its controversy? Then return with us to the early days. Return with us to the classics. Amazing Spider-Man Classics at Amazing Spider-Man. Dot Libsyn dot com. To him, life is a great big pain. Wherever there's a pain, you'll find the Spider-Man. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com.